A $600 million election for Canada to wind up pretty well where we started, a liberal minority. For those of us who lamented the lack of discussion on foreign policy in that campaign, there is one huge issue facing this country, and that is the Chinese government. Will relations be different this time around? Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand. We're coming to you from a remote location and practicing physical distancing to enhance safety. There's been a dark cloud hanging over Canada-China relations for about three years now. Before the pandemic, it was the two Michaels who've been incarcerated and convicted on trumped-up charges in the wake of the arrest of Meng Wanzhou in Vancouver. Factor in the saber-rattling about Taiwan, China's expansion into the South China Sea, and it appears China is not concerned about others. Our unpublished.vote question asks, do you... Uh, expect Canada-China relations to improve with our new government? Yes, no, or unsure? You can log on and vote right now at unpublished.vote and have your voice heard. The Canada-China relationship got a free pass during the campaign, but it's been more than 1,000 days since the two Michaels knew freedom. Taiwan continues to be intimidated. Canadians in Hong Kong feel trapped. All eyes are watching what happens next. Coming up on the Unpublished Cafe, we'll take a look at the response from the world, including a new partnership to tackle China. Later in the show, we'll talk to author Joanna Chu, whose new book, China Unbound, will soon be on shelves. Joanna also covers China for the Toronto Star in Vancouver. First, I am pleased to be joined by Bijan Almadi. He's the executive director of the Institute of Peace and Democracy. And Bijan, thank you for joining us. Hi, Ed. Thank you for inviting me. It's the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy. And uh, sorry, but and diplomacy is no the Canada problem. is the Canada China relationship based on mutual trust. Uh, you know, it's a difficult question to answer. Uh, China uh, cannot be considered uh, Canada's uh, allies the same way that we consider uh, Europe or uh, United States as our allies. Um, with allies, your relationship is based on uh, mutual uh, trust and mutual interest that you want to advance together alongside of each other. Uh, but with China, it is different. Um, but if you allow me, Ed, I want to, you know, uh, before I get into the details of Canada-China relations, I want to look at the bigger uh, picture um, and, and talk about the need for Canada to have uh, a foreign policy, a coherent foreign policy strategy and what role it wants to play on the world stage. I think these are questions we have not reassessed, we have not reviewed our foreign policy strategy for a long time now. Many experts, including myself, we believe that we don't have a strategy that is the underlying basis for our foreign policy. And that is a problem that I think then the problems, the challenges we face with China and other countries, other bilateral relations that we have is a product of this lack uh, of strategy. Uh, so uh, what we need to, we make reactions to world events usually. Uh, we react, we make statements. A lot of times these statements are based on values that we believe in, but a lot of times it's difficult to link our reactions, our ad hoc reactions and our statements to Canadian interests. And the main reason in my opinion is that we don't have a clear strategy that defines what our interests are and then uh, what our foreign policy goals should be based on these interests and then the means that we uh, that we have to utilize to achieve them. Uh, so Canada's core interest, same as any other country, should be to protect the security and economic well-being of our people. 
uh, with respect to every complex issue that we face on the world stage, we should ask ourselves how we need to act, how our, our action is going to advance these core interests. Now, part of our problem with China, as I said, is this lack of a strategy. So yes, we have multiple issues with China. We do not have that mutual trust that you mentioned, but I don't think right now we have a plan to address these challenges and to move forward. So once we define our strategy, um, once we define our interests and a strategy based on that, I think our plan with China should look like uh, something like this that I want to explain for you. We need to work with China on areas that we have to. In my opinion, we need to work with them on trade, and we can get into more detail about mm. that. We need to work with them on climate change. And then there are areas that we have to compete with China along with our allies. For example, infrastructure investment is one of, that, one of those uh, areas. And there have been discussions with our allies, including the United States, on how we can compete with the BRI by putting together an infrastructure investment plan of ourselves with our allies. And then there are areas of concern where we need to invest in our capabilities to ensure that we can protect our sovereignty and our security. And I give you one example that's usually not mentioned a lot in media, uh, and that is the Arctic. I think the Arctic is a major area of concern for Canada, not only with respect to China, but also with respect to Russia. And we need to invest in our capabilities so that we can protect our security and our sovereignty in the Arctic. Uh, yeah, so to wrap, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say that in terms of uh, Canada and, and China, you've, you've got these two countries in such disagreement on a number of uh, obviously issues. And, and I'm wondering how you repair this relationship. Does that start with the strategy you talk about? Or, you know, yes. well, let's face it, the two Michaels at Taiwan, Hong Kong, they don't have time for people to come up with plans. Yeah. So we definitely need to have a plan for our broader relationship with China. But uh, and, and overall for our foreign policy path uh, moving forward. Right now, I think we do not have a clear uh, plan as what is our role on the global stage. And this is not only limited to our relationship with China. We are not very sure about our plan with the United States and how we want to, uh, what's our policy toward the more unpredictable United States. Uh, the unpredictability started with Donald Trump's presidency, but we have seen that under Biden administration, the United States is less predictable in compared to uh, before. So we need to have a plan to address these issues. So I think the plan is necessary. But you mentioned the issue of the two Michaels, uh, and that's a major uh, challenge in Canada-China relations. Till that issue is not resolved, I don't think we can move forward on any other uh, front. Now, there are important developments that was uh, reported actually today regarding the case of Meng Wanzhou, uh, which can lead, hopefully, uh, I hope that it can lead to the release of and return of uh, our two Canadian citizens, Michael Kobrig and Michael Spavor. Uh, so based on reports in few hours, uh, Meng Wanzhou, the executive of uh, Huawei, is expected to appear in a U.S. federal court. Apparently, there is a deal in place that will resolve the charges against Meng in return for her, uh, for, for her to plead guilty and pay a fine. So the extradition case can be resolved and closed as, as early as today, Friday. 
Uh, now, we know that Canadian government, our ambassador, they have been in negotiations in Washington and in Beijing. So my assumption is that uh, securing the release of our two Canadian citizens have been part of these negotiations as well. Now, I do not expect that our two Canadian citizens to be released today. Uh, it might take a bit longer. Uh, Chinese officials uh, all along this process, falsely in my opinion, have claimed that these cases are unrelated, but I think that this will happen uh, soon. Uh, and and uh, I expect the Chinese officials will claim that, uh, you know, they are releasing the two Michaels on the basis of uh, humanitarian reasons. I don't think we need to care about that. All we need to care about is to secure um, the safe return of our two Canadian citizens to return back home. Does Canada want or need to repair this relationship? It's been three years of pretty, a lot of acrimony, a lot of uh, accusations and well, hostage, hostage diplomacy more than anything else. Uh, you, you know, I always think about when you're dealing with dip diplomacy, it's like, you know, a neighborhood, you know, if that's the way your neighbor treated you, would you, would you even want to be there anymore? So I'm kind of wondering, do, do we need to repair this relationship? Yes, and uh, I think the reason is that uh, China is, you know, the second largest economy in the world right now, uh, moving uh, towards becoming the largest economy, uh, number one, and we have uh, significant trade relations uh, with them. But it's not only trade, and I will talk about trade a little bit more later on, but uh, it's not only about trade. I don't agree that Canada should be isolationist. We cannot isolate ourselves with respect to what's happening in the world. We need to engage. And in order for us to advance our interests, we need to engage with different countries, both with our allies, that we agree with them, we have that mutual trust with them and can work with them closely, but also those countries that we don't agree with them, especially with a major country uh, like China, a superpower. So if you don't mind, on the issue of trade, uh, you know, sure. let's, let's, let's look at one number, uh, Ed. The Canadian exports to China increased by over 37%, 37% in the first quarter this year, when you compare it to the same period last year. Now, if you compare this to other countries, how our exports have performed uh, to other countries in the same period, our export only grew by less than 4%. So, uh, I think in our path to economic recovery post-COVID pandemic, we need to do more trade and find markets for Canadian products and Canadian um, producers uh, to, to, for them to export to and grow their business. Decoupling with China, whether politically or economically, I think is, is a step uh, in the wrong direction. Uh, now, there are, for example, issues with respect to su supply chain. We need to look at that. We need to find vulnerabilities uh, that we have in those supply chains and diversify and fix those vulnerabilities. But decoupling, separating ourselves from whatever happening in uh, that part of the region, I don't think is a solution. All right, Bijan, I want to thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ed. Bijan Ahmadi is the executive director of the Institute of Peace and Diplomacy. The political ramifications of China's aggression have sparked the formation of a new group to deal with the issue as well. China continues to gaze around its circle of influence. Elliot Tepper is a professor at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. 
and he joins us now. And, and Elliot, a thousand days plus and counting for the two Michaels. We're pretty well the same government in charge here again. What do you expect uh, of the relationship this time around? The same as we've seen in the past. That is a lot of behind the scenes activity, some very uh, subtle but important internationalization of this issue, a gaining of international allies so Canada is not standing alone, uh, some moderately uh, aggressive actions overseas, such as sending the uh, Ottawa, the frigate uh, through the Taiwan Strait two or three times in the Winnipeg. But uh, a lot of the activity is going to be behind the scenes. The um, fact that the government was reelected means that it'll be steady as she goes in that regard. You know, we've got a, a new defense group uh, created, Australia, the United States, and the UK. For, what can it do? And, and secondly, where was Canada in the development of this? It looks like it's three of the five members of the, the five eyes. Right. Um, well, I think there's two things to comment on. One is your opening comment about the possibility that a deal may be struck. We've been talking about this, you and I, for a long time. And I've suggested all, right from the beginning that the three ways out of this is that she will win her case in court. Uh, second of all, that the U.S. might just withdraw, withdraw the extradition request. And uh, the third is that, you know, uh, Canada may take some actions on its own bilaterally. Canada has tried to avoid all bilateral relations so that we don't stand along, alone against this behemoth of China. We have heard before, this is the third time now we're hearing, that there might be a deal struck for a deferred prosecution. Our ambassador to China did something extraordinary a few months ago. He spent three weeks in Washington, DC, where we already you know, have an ambassador. Uh, and there was rumors that it was all about trying to negotiate a deferred prosecution. Uh, then we heard about it uh, again, not too long ago. And now we're, it's interesting, it's back in the news. So the possibility exists, we'll get out of the Meng Wanzhou issue by um, the by the negotiation, if she's so far, uh, just to back up a bit what that means, she has to admit guilt. She's not been willing to admit guilt. Uh, the deferred prosecution meant, okay, you admit you did something wrong, we'll slap a little fine on you, then you can go home. Uh, she's not been willing to do that. Her lawyers and her company have not been willing to do that. Perhaps that situation has changed. In regard to the new formation. Yes, we have a, a, a shocking new development in that the five eyes just became three eyes. Uh, this Australia, UK, US, AUKUS, or as I'm saying, awkward uh, <laughs> new pact, because uh, it was seen immediately by France as being, quote, a stab in the back. France really was deeply insulted by this. So this has divided the Western alliance, maybe threatening a bit of the stability of NATO because the United States has decided it would deal with Australia in a way, along with the UK, that better equipped Australia to deal with an evolving situation involving China. We should discuss that further, I think. You know, we talk about China and its uh, circle of influence and uh, I was reading recently that uh, they sort of stepped up on the, the collapse of Afghanistan, that the U.S. is responsible for reparations, getting everything back together again. The Taliban now back in Afghanistan. Do you expect to see China uh, reaching out to the Taliban at all? 
it's happened already. The Taliban have reached out to China immediately. They actually went on a diplomatic offensive just before and just after they took power, seized power once again in Afghanistan. They went to Russia and said, don't worry, you won't have anything coming out of our area into Central Asia, hostile to you. They went to uh, Iran saying some, we aren't sure what they said to Iran, but basically don't worry. But they went immediately to China where they were very well received, Ed, keeping in mind that this is supposed to be a, um, a Muslim group believing in above all else that Islam is the center of their raison d'etre. But right next door is China oppressing you know, a million Uyghurs. And there they were, the foreign minister of China standing side by side with the Taliban. And that's just happened again. There's, no, there's ongoing negotiations. They've renewed and continued to, and tried to deepen that. China has said they're going to give a lot of aid and they're also going to be providing, I think, $30 million in aid. And they're also going to be providing vaccines because uh, Afghanistan also has the coronavirus. So all that adds up to the fact that it looks as if it appears that the Taliban will cheerfully sacrifice their Muslim solidarity with the, with the Uma, with the Uyghurs in, in China, in order to gain the support of the superpower that is quite willing, China, to move into the vacuum that was left when the U.S. pulled out and also the U.S. pulled NATO out. That created an opportunity for China. The Taliban are quite willing to exploit it, apparently, and so too are the Chinese. You know, the, the CCP see Canada and Australia as essential targets. What makes us essential targets? Canada in particular? Yeah. Canada in particular is because we have Meng Wanzhou. This is, the, um, this is the primary issue for China relating to Canada. Canada has a lot of other things. You know, we have agricultural products. We have rare earths that... Uh, China wants to lock up like they're doing all around the world very, very successfully. But their primary concern with Canada is that we do not make them look even worse on the world stage. And we're quite good at that. We've really rallied support. But they really want Meng Wanzhou back. It's very clear that, uh, and, and I'm surprised, by the way, that the U.S. Uh, under Trump and now Biden doesn't take advantage of the fact China has said, here is something we really, really, really want in Canada's caught in the middle on this. Hey, if this is something you want, why can't we make some deals? But there's apparently no sign of that until Meng Wanzhou leaves Canadian shores. Uh, China and Canada are going to have a very low level, a very hostile, frosty relationship. Elliot, I want to thank you for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome, Ed. Elliot Tepper is a professor at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. When it comes to influence outside its borders, China's efforts continue to grow. Joanna Chu is the Deputy Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star in Vancouver, where she covers China. She's also uh, releasing a new book, China Unbound, A New World Disorder. And Joanna joins us now from Vancouver. And, and Joanna, there is news this morning or this afternoon uh, in Vancouver about Meng Wanzhou, right? Yes, so we're hearing news um, today, earlier today's morning, that uh, Reuters is reporting that Meng Wanzhou is expected to appear virtually on online to a U.S. court to plead guilty to the fraud charges. 
um, that the U.S. has against her, which uh, sparked a whole saga, which which sparked the U.S. Justice Department asking Canada RCMP to arrest her um, in order to face uh, eventual extradition. But she's her case. She's been fighting her extradition in at the Vancouver court. Uh, for all these years since. And the two Michaels, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, uh, have been uh, in detention in China and accused of spying. Uh, right now, it's wi widely understood as a retaliation for, for Meng's detention by China uh, since late 2018. So a lot of this I wrote about in my book uh, in the Canada chapter. So it's pretty big news because it might be a major uh, turning point in the overall relations between US and China, also Canada and China, and perhaps other middle powers in China, um, if these tensions finally kind of simmer down, or maybe they will continue to ratchet up, but it might be different issues that might be the major cause of tension. So it's too soon to say, but definitely noteworthy, and we're watching what happens later today. Uh, you worked in and lived in, in, in China. Uh, did you ever feel mm -hmm. under surveillance when you were there? Oh, yeah. Um, I think if you live in China, work in China, especially as a foreign journalist, uh, I actually spent most of my efforts covering the most sensitive issues in China, human rights, rule of law, politics. Um, so you basically assume that everything, all of your communications are surveilled or could be seized. So even though I use, um, you know, the best apps around the market, the best VPNs that my company could provide, um, if Chinese police detain you, take your laptop, take your phone that they have in the past to um, Canadian journalists, Canadian Global Mail correspondent Nathan Panaclip happened to him on a reporting trip. Um, then they could just read everything. So uh, my primary concern were my sources in China, the, the people I spoke with who were Chinese citizens. Um, so I tried not to have anything in writing that could incriminate them. So I tried my best to uh, speak with them, at least over the phone, if not uh, in person. What sparked you to write this book? Well, I was a correspondent in Hong Kong first and then Beijing. So in Hong Kong, I witnessed uh, this explosion of the protest movements uh, for democracy and to kind of protect uh, Hong Kong's, um, the promises that China made uh, Hong Kong that it would retain its rule of law uh, situation and free press free freedoms for 50 years but this has you know come crashing down in hong kong uh, with the national security law and a crackdown on protesters and politicians many moderate um pro-democracy politicians in hong kong are, are arrested on this national security law that accuses them of subversion so hong kong has quickly in my time since my reporting time there has become very close to just another chinese city um, and when I was in Beijing, basically, I tracked how under President Xi Jinping, the crackdown on civil society just became worse and worse. Um, people who previously were able to speak relatively freely, like online, for example, uh, were also facing criminal charges um, because new laws were being put in place to try to uh, further clamp down on speech in China. Um, but after seven years, you know, I, I gave it my all. I figured that the China story would be behind me. So I returned back to my home in Vancouver, started working for the Star. Um, now I'm a journalist for the Star, uh, writing for them rather than managing because our, our uh, office kind of downsized. Um, I thought the story would be 
Behind me, I would focus on things in Canada, but within months of my return, Meng Wanzhou, like we talked about earlier, was arrested in Vancouver airport. And weeks after that, China took in retaliation to two Michaels and Michael Kovrig, the former diplomat is actually a friend of mine. So it was very personal and just very intense. And suddenly it, it kind of sent shockwaves around the world where all of these countries, these Western countries that felt that they were exempt from any kind of bullying tactics from China, that this was something China only did to its Asian neighbors, to, to smaller countries in its sphere of influence that um, it was actually going to happen to Canadians, that, you know, white Canadian men were going to pay the price for some of these tensions. So it kind of caught a lot of countries off guard and it became pretty clear that many countries, governments did not have a deep um, store of expertise and knowledge on China. Um, in Canada, Can the Canadian government has been promising a rethink, a new strategy on ways to approach Beijing um, for years. And the federal election is over and this hasn't come out. We, Canada is among the only major countries that for example, haven't made a decision on whether to allow uh, Huawei into it, the development of Canadian 5G networks, whether it was secure or not to do so. Uh, a lot of countries have made that decision, whether it's a ban or a partial ban or some sort of introducing general safeguards, but Canada has, hasn't done that. Uh, Ottawa throughout the last few years has been kind of adopted a wait and see approach um, to try not to rock the boat too much and see if things resolve on their own, or maybe Washington and Beijing could work things out on their own and Canada wouldn't have to be so involved or stick its neck out. Uh, yeah, you brought up the federal election and we pretty well have the same government uh, following that election. Do you expect this relationship to get, to get better with the new liberal minority mm -hmm. uh, or is it just going to be status quo? Um, especially with this news that Meng is likely to make a deal with uh, the U.S. and that she could maybe walk free later today. I think it seems the signs are that uh, the liberal government would be quite happy to return to the status quo because it seemed to have wanted to preserve the status quo despite these huge tensions the last few years flaring up anyways. Um, what I worry about is because my book isn't just about a few people who are, you know, really well known, like Meng Wanzhou and even the two Michaels. The book is about many people around the world who get affected by China's increasing authoritarianism and how China's uh, police surveillance technologies are very sophisticated and can effectively intimidate, harass people no matter where they live in the world. So in Vancouver, just in one kind of relatively small town, Port Coquitlam, the mayor told me exclusively that dozens of his constituents had either Chinese officials visit them at their homes or, or contact them some other way by phone, for example, to try to tell them to stop speaking out about issues that Beijing felt was sensitive, including um, support for Hong Kong democracy. Mm -hmm. So these were Canadians on Canadian soil who were getting Chinese officials show up at their doorstep. So you can imagine uh, what that's like in just one small uh, municipality. And uh, CSIS sources say this likely happens across Canada, but um, it's happened to me where I've been, um, I've received death threats um, in response 
to my reporting on the Uyghur situation in Xinjiang um, and reported to Canadian police. And they told me really candidly that there was likely nothing they could do um, unless I was calling in an immediate uh, attack on myself. Um, there's nothing they could do to track where these threats are coming from, even if there's a suspicion that they might be linked to some sort of um, foreign state or they might be foreign nationals. Um, Chinese Canadian police are have no, um, it seems like they have no parameters to investigate what's happening. And it's the case around the world in Australia, Australian citizens of Chinese heritage have been arrested, have been just really menaced with lots of threats because um, Beijing feels that with its uh, rise that it's important to control the narrative and to keep a lid on especially the Chinese diaspora around the world that might be influential in um, creating some external criticism against its government. So um, it seems that in the last few years, even with the tensions rising with the Huawei situation that Canada hasn't provided any new frameworks, um, if these tensions lower, these you know big scale tensions, I don't think Ottawa will be motivated to to deliver on these promises to protect Canadians, for example, who are being harassed by uh, suspected Chinese officials and agents. Joanna, I want to thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me on and highlighting my book. And there's a lot more detail in China Unbound because um, each chapter focuses on different Western countries as a case study. Um, and the situation is different everywhere. Um, in Europe, it's a lot, the tone is a lot more positive to China and the economic influence of China is a lot more interesting there because uh, uh, the doubts and the kind of public awareness about China are, tend to be so much lower. Terrific. All the best with the book. Yeah, thank you. Joanna Chu is the Deputy Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star in Vancouver covering China. She also has a brand new book out, China Unbound, A New World Disorder. Our unpublished.vote question asks, do you expect Canada-China relations to improve with our new government? Yes, no, or unsure. You can log on and vote right now at unpublished.vote. I want to thank our guest today, Bijan Amadi of the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy, Elliot Tepper of the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, and Joanna Chu at the Toronto Star, as well as the author of China Unbound, A New World Disorder. And I want to thank you for watching The Unpublished Cafe. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.